If you would, join me in prayer. Father, as we come before you this day, Lord, we uh, recognize that this building is not your house, but that these bodies are the temple of the living God. For those of us who trust and believe in Jesus Christ and have repented of our sins, Lord, a repentance that you have granted, we come before you and are able to boldly come in prayer, Lord, and in supplication that you would uh, forgive us of our sins and trusting that you would and that you're able and that you're willing. Lord, and we praise you and worship you uh, for granting us this repentance. Lord, for granting us even the ability to draw this air, this breath that we have, Lord, and to be assembled here today. And Lord, we ask that as we open your word this morning, that we would truly see Jesus Christ. And that as we consider the text and the words upon these pages, Lord, it is my prayer that everyone here would consider that these are not just merely words that have been typed, or not merely words that have been written, but these are the words that have proceeded from your mouth. And these are the words that are good and righteous and lead to holiness and lead to a closer walk with thee. And God, I pray that this morning that is exactly uh, what your people would find here, a closer walk with you, an intimate knowledge of your Son, the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I ask that for those that have not yet received your Spirit, Lord, we just pray that the gospel go forth from the preaching and that uh, men may be made small and may be removed and that that I and selfishness, Lord, will be removed and that the wickedness of our tongues also would be set aside, Lord, so that we could boldly proclaim who the Christ is and who you are, Lord, as one who has sent your Son to die and to suffer the sins and the wrath that was set for me, Lord, and that we would see in Christ the salvation of all who would be saved and that we would turn to him, Lord, and never be allowed to turn back. And I pray this morning that you would receive our worship and that we would ascribe to you the glory and the honor in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. We're in Acts chapter 6. And as many of you are aware that some would be here to gather with us this morning, uh, many, many members and many visitors, and it's safe to assume that some have come to support Brother Pat, and uh, as this most assuredly is an ordination service, uh, if you will, for lack of a better term. But more importantly, I think it's necessary that we all be reminded that ultimately we're gathered here today for a single purpose, and that must be to worship and to glorify God, to ascribe glory to Jesus Christ, the resurrected King and Lord of Lords. And this must be true of our worship, no matter if it is this morning or if it's on Wednesdays. In fact, it should be every morning that we arise and every night that we go to bed that we truly worship as we should today. I'll read this passage for me from 1 Corinthians. It says, So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And as we uh, would recognize Brother Pat today, uh, there, there's a great charge upon Pat as a deacon, but also for us as the church, that whatever we do and whenever we do it, 
that we do it for the glory of God and to the glory of God. Colossians chapter 3 verse 17 likewise says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So if you would be here today, uh, and it would be an atypical uh, gathering for you to come and be in the house of the Lord with Brother Pat, uh, I would just ask that, uh, that all of us consider that what we do today in word and deed and everything that we have done, that it be done not just for a man and not just for a church, but that it be done for Jesus Christ and for God the Father who sent him to die for those who would be ransomed. Now I think uh, we should begin with our text in Acts chapter 6 verse 1. It says, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. Because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So what we see is that the text begins by describing a certain situation with the church. Now, another thing that you'll notice is oftentimes throughout this passage we see the word disciple. Uh, it's known that the, the word disciple is what we would use today and call a Christian. It was later uh, developed this term Christian, but a disciple literally means the Christian. And in this text, uh, it certainly and immediately means the members of this local particular body that we see. And they're dealing with a situation. Now, immediately our minds rush to a conclusion about this condition in the church. In this particular church, we should examine very carefully uh, the true issue that is at hand. The, the scriptures declare with no uncertainty, now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number. Yes, the church was growing. Uh, that means that the church was growing in number as we see, but it also must mean if the church was growing that it was growing in spirit. And so we, I want to, to bring that to your recognition so that we aren't just always thinking of church growth in numbers, but it also means that they're growing in spirit. And we'll see that by the concern of those men who would bring the widows forth and charge the, the Hebrew people with not delegating and, and bringing the food as they uh, should and as they ought. But yes, this church was physically growing in number and the body of Christ was getting bigger. There were many members being added as we're told in previous chapters. And these are many members to be reminded that there are many members of one body. And this was the body of Christ. This is in fact the bride of Christ. And they had increased with membership, uh, and it's previously noted, like I said, now they would be called 
Christians later on, but in this text it's described as a growth of disciples. The timeline actually begins with the first chapter in Acts, and then it continues with chapter 2 all the way to chapter 5, and these are the accounts that we see. Acts chapter 1, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of the persons was in all about 120, and said... Uh, then in Acts chapter 2, Therefore let all the house of Israel know surely that God hath made the same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Here is the church, the 120, proclaiming Jesus Christ and Christ crucified, the one who is Lord, the one who is also God and man. And it says, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Notice that these men were pricked in the heart. They didn't make a decision for Christ. They didn't decide all of a sudden that this Christ seemed appealing, but rather the, the text says that Christ was of no form or comeliness that any man should desire him. The truth is that their heart was pricked and that their consciences were changed and they were caused to repent of their wickedness against God. And it said in the following verses, Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Christ for the remission of your sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and all that are far off, even as many as the Lord God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they, they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So what we see from chapter 1 to chapter 3 is that they're beginning, uh, most certainly they began with one or two disciples, and then there was 120, and now that we see there's about 3,000 souls, and then we make it to Acts Chapter 4, and it says that as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They arrested them, and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. So what we see in the last uh, verse there, verse 4, many who had heard the word. There was no one that came to Christ that came without hearing the word, the word that was God, the word that was made manifest, the word that was the flesh. They were preaching Christ. They were teaching Christ. And because of it, some again were pricked in the heart and they believed and it came to about 5,000. So we're a few, 120, 3,000, 5,000, and then we come to Acts 5. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Simon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Few, 120, 3,000, 5,000 multitudes being added to the church. Now remember that I said that we should be very careful to see the issue at hand. At first glance, one would say that I see the problem. I see what's going on with the church, and it's, it's, a, it's good to see that. It's a good problem. The church was growing. Well, yes, the church was growing, but the issue wasn't really necessarily that the church was growing. That isn't really the heart of the issue. 
It wasn't that the church was really getting too big and they were running out of room or that they were uh, having a hard time finding a place to meet and to worship. But instead, we find that the church growth has actually contributed to the real issue that we'll see soon arising. So we see a church moving from this 120 to a multitude and then by all accounts, it seems representative that even these numbers are slightly skewed because the Bible says that for the most part, these were the, the count, the number of men. These didn't even include uh, the men and the women and the children. But you can imagine this was such a great sum, a huge, if you will, uh, for lack of a better term, mega church that was forming there and it was a true church it was people who were being truly converted because there was no other gospel than the true gospel of jesus christ it wasn't a watered down gospel it wasn't a false gospel but it came from the apostles who were certainly living a spirit-filled life devoted to christ so we see that there was not a problem that the church was too big but the real problem was that the servants were too few you, you understand that we're talking about a church full of new converts. And likewise, if you can think of your own life as you came to know Christ and you were saved and you had this realization that you were a sinner and you repented before God, you didn't understand your responsibility toward the church nor to fellow man without reading the Bible, without being full aware. So the problem is not that the church is growing, but that the church is lacking a maturity of leadership. And, and really because of the quick growth, there are those who don't understand what the responsibility is of the church to the people, to, to its members. And so here is the underlying problem that the complaint arose from the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. The growth wasn't the problem, the lack of true growth, mature growth in the growth of the Christian, in the becoming of Christians is the real problem. And we look, and this isn't really the first problem with the church but you can bet the church had disagreements and there was hypocrisy and there was sin. After all, it was made up of human beings and we all know that no church is without sin and no, because of the church is literally uh, many members, many bodies, many humans and because of that, every human is a sinner. Therefore, the church could not be without sin. What we do see is this is the real first division that... Uh, amongst groups of people within the church rather than just sin that would call division amongst once or two or, or couples or maybe a few families what we see is this is a uh, a sin that has come along and has been made known and it's causing a huge division a, a splitting of the church if you will notice that when, when the when it happens the divide is amongst uh, groups, cliques, rather than they all, all of a sudden segregate between the native Jews and those born in other areas. So, so, you know, at first everyone's loving one another, everyone's considering one another, and then all of a sudden it splits. There's a cultural split dividing the two. And it's based upon earthly things rather than spiritual things. Let everyone know this morning that when a, a, a church split or when someone leaves the church or when anyone has an issue with the church that we better make sure that it's based on doctrine it better be uh, a split that occurs because of the nature of jesus christ let us not be departed uh, from one another because of things that are secondary to the gospel but let it be because there's a false gospel being taught Anything else, let us reconcile, but let us stand firm only on the person and work of Jesus Christ and on biblical doctrine, and everything else really doesn't matter. 
But we have uh, at least a, a record of these sins, not just this particular one, but ones even before. In fact, in the previous chapter, we have a record of what would seem to be a very awful sin, a sin that led to a physical immediate death when we look at Ananias and Sapphira as they had withheld this offering to the church. And notice still that their sin looked like it was against the church, but we know that the, the text of Scripture declares that no sin is really against another man, but all sin is against God. Their sin was against the church, but Peter even says it. He said, you have sinned against the Holy Spirit, against God, the third person of the Trinity, and it would seem that defrauding the church of money would have harmed them to some degree, and we don't deny that that they had uh, freely given and said that they would give this offering, but then they decided to keep it back. And it seemed like it may hinder the growth of the church or the need of the church and the, able, the ability to fulfill that need. But the truth is that it really didn't harm the church because God uses even these things to cleanse the church and to grow the church spiritually, not just in number, but in knowledge of who Christ is and who God is and what He has done in the person of Christ. And for this reason, we see the growth of the church even just this, in this previous chapter because these men are struck dead. It says, this man and woman, it says that they, the men who saw this and the women who saw this came and they began to fear. There was an intimate knowledge of the God that they served in the in the execution of his judgment upon these people. And they served, and they served God, and they served Christ, who is the head. And because they were serving the head, naturally they would serve the church. Notice that all sin uh, is not simply hurting someone, but God even uses this to bring about his glory, to bring about his honor. And we could spend a great deal of, of time unearthing the, uh, the truths of the neglect of the members of the church, both in the past and in the present, even in, in our own church. And we can talk about the neglect of Scripture and the neglect of this responsibility or that. But the reality is that there is a fundamental failure in this particular text that we're apprised of. It's a fundamental failure on behalf of all of the disciples. Why can I blame it upon all the disciples? Because if we were truly making disciples even in this time and, and even today, if we were making disciples according to Scripture, there would be no one who was unaware of their duty and responsibility to the church. That's what the responsibility is of the leadership, to know that those coming up under us, those who are uh, not yet feasting on the meat of the Word, but that are taking in the milk, that we're allowing a gracious time period for them to grow. We're being long-suffering because everyone doesn't get to the same place at the same time. But in the same sense, we're nurturing that growth so that people not only know the Christ, these elementary fundamentals of being a Christian, but that they're coming to know Christ in such a way that they begin to serve Christ and they, in turn, serve the church. Here is that fundamental failure. They sought to be a holy and righteous and pure people, but they could not be pure with simply their religion. Not if this neglect was to go on and be found as truth as as that it would be truly unbiblical for them to do that does not james say this in chapter 1 verse 27 pure religion and 
undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. The problem is that if they would neglect the widows, they would not only break just one half of that particular verse in verse 27, but to neglect those would also be to spot yourself, would be to bring a, a blemish. To bring a charge, to allow the world to creep in and take your eyes off of the bride of Christ, and of course taking your eyes off of Christ. In this we recognize that every church will somehow fall short. Every church will fall short because the church are men and women, and because the church are men and women, there must be sin. Rather, that shows us an express need for the grace and the mercy of Christ. With every tight ship, if you will, you will always find one slack line. If we're going around looking for the impurities of the church, if we're going around looking simply for sin at all times, then one thing, we're taking the focus off of, of ourselves, allowing sin to creep in unawares, and we're in the same hand missing what God is doing in the growth of the church. We have to be very careful. Do we stand firm on the gospel and on good, sound Bible doctrine? Of course we do. Do we do that to the point that we negate what Christ is currently doing? Absolutely not. We must be fixed upon the cross, being aware and being vigilant, but knowing that the grace of Christ is sufficient. Every church will have a problem. And this was the problem that we see in Jerusalem. More than the apostles themselves can in fact handle. And we see that this is evident. And to deal with temporary provision, they would be forced to, in one sense, sidebar their, their spiritual feeding of the flock. And they couldn't have this. They knew that they could not sacrifice the word feeding upon Christ for feeding upon temporal food, earthly provision. This simply cannot occur. And sadly enough to say that in the modern professing church, this happens every day. People are raising up churches with the, with the idea and the motto and the, the, uh, the idea that they would, instead of meeting the spiritual need, that they would first meet the physical need. That we're here for some other purpose than to present the gospel and, and we can't do this. At the very least, the provisions weren't being passed out and dispersed appropriately and some would no doubt suffer. And this is what is happening. Two things to note here. First, some were neglected. These widows were neglected. Second, others cared enough about these widows to take action. Like I said, anytime we have something negative here in the Scripture and we see sin, we can also see where God's provision and His mercy is. One, that these people were neglecting the widows, but how wonderful is God's grace that He did, in fact, raise up men at this time who would come forth and care enough for these widows to say, we have an issue. We have an issue in the, need to, in, in the church, and we need to collectively do something about it. These men and women were calling each other and causing each other to be accountable for the responsibilities. The responsibilities to the widows and, of course, to all of the church. Because why? Because this is the infinite, infinite price paid to purchase the bride of Christ. If Christ is willing to give everything, including his life, what should the church not be willing to give in order that they meet their responsibilities? If this person is worth the life of Christ, shouldn't they be worth a few, a few cents or a few pieces of bread or a few uh, pieces of fish or some time to pass these things out? Most certainly we must 
take the, uh, the position in the church to look at every believer as infinitely priceless because of the work of Christ and the price paid by Christ. And so here is what we see, this responsibility to the church. In the second point, we should also benefit from seeing that the ministry of the Holy Spirit was so powerful that he would not allow these things to go unnoticed in the church. Notice that Christ is not sitting idle. Notice that God is not turning his ear or turning his eye from the problems in the church. Rather, when the problem arises, Christ is there. The Holy Spirit is there to minister the words and the truths of the text of Scripture so that every man is able to see the need that he is missing. He's able to see his shortcomings. This is the, the, the significance of seeing that the Holy Spirit was there to show the people where they were failing. God is not missing what you need. God has not turned his eye nor his ear from his people. He speaks to their hearts. He speaks through his spirit and through the work of his son. And for those widows who are suffering in this particular context... He knew their every need. They couldn't have gone without food for too long because we don't have an account of the widows are dying because they haven't been fed. But notice how, how quickly Christ is able to show the need to his people. Christ even today knows our every need. I'll say this. Our every need does not begin with food and it doesn't begin with shelter and it doesn't begin with finances. But the, the greatest need of mankind is for a Savior. And that's what this text is pointing to. Then chapter 12, verse 2. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable uh, for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. It's not desirable. We shouldn't give up the greater things for the lesser. Are we going to quit feeding the flock? Are we going to keep quit teaching about Jesus Christ so that you can have a little food, so that you can live just a few more days upon this earth so that this vapor can be just for a short time extended certainly not another great biblical truth was stated about this by paul in first corinthians chapter 14 verse 5 i would that ye all spake with tongues but rather that ye prophesied for greater is he that prophesieth than he that speaketh with tongues except he interpret that the church may receive edifying paul even uh, even Acknowledge what we're seeing here in Acts chapter 6 when they said we can't, uh, we can't go through this ministry feeding the widows ourselves when you need to be fed the word of God. And Paul says it the, in just a little bit different way. He said it's greater that you prophesy, greater than any gift uh, other than love as we will later see. But he's saying this is the need of the congregation. This is the need of the people of the Lord that they be fed spiritual food. The, the Christ that was the manna in the wilderness. The Christ that is the bread of life. The water that is the living water whose thirst will never come again, but Christ is able to quench forever. We will not thirst again if we drink from His well. This is the Christ that they were ministering. These men recognized a significant value in giving attention to ministering the Word. And that is the, the appropriate viewpoint that we should gather from Acts chapter 6, that we must see how important there is a need for ministering. Not just ministering food and not just ministering to these physical needs, but most certainly, first and foremost, ministering those needs which are spiritual. Preaching the gospel. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. For by this, salvation may come. Who cares if you live one day or 20 days if you're saved and you're going to be with the Lord Jesus Christ? 
What does one more day of bread do for you? If anything, it just makes you stink a little longer. You know? By this gospel, Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, had this church come to love one another and care for one another. And this is why we see the Hellenistic Jews coming forward with this problem. Without the gospel, this problem wouldn't even have arisen. For every man would be concerned only with his selfish self. Do you realize without Jesus Christ, these people would never have said, hey, you're, we're neglecting the widows. We've got to do something. They would be like, well, who cares about them? I'm, I'm out for myself. This is the power of the gospel, that these men would even care for one another. Excuse me. Romans 10, verse 14 says, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? This is what the apostles' response was when a need came up. We can't fulfill this need because we're fulfilling the need of salvation, the need to hear the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so then now we see how the Hellenistic Jews feel for the widows. Because of this, there's a great love for the widows. They come to the apostles. They say, we can't neglect the word. We must teach salvation in Christ and in Christ alone by repentant faith. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we see this. This is the love of Christ. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I live, I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profit me nothing. Love suffereth long and is kind. It envieth not. Love vaunteth not itself. It is not puffed up. Doth not seek itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Love never faileth, but wherever there be prophecies, they shall fail. Wherever there be tongues, they shall cease. Wherever there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but that which is perfect is come. Then that which is in part shall be done away with. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I taught as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face... Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. The people that would come with this problem to the church were loving their fellow church members because of what Christ has done. Because of the greatest gift that we've been given. A true love, not a Greco-Roman myth of love, but love that is willing to do even when the one being loved is not willing to reciprocate. It's a willing act. It's an act of volition that we want to love. This is not natural to a man who is unregenerate. Even though all of this is not a stronger gospel testimony of the, of even through this, excuse me, all of this is not a stronger gospel testimony of the work of Christ than what we see before us. 
than what is before us this day in the text that Christ took fallen men from 1 to 2 to 120 to 3,000 to 5,000 to a multitude and he drew them out of darkness conforming their will to his in order that they might serve him instead of serving themselves for in serving themselves they were slaves to Satan. This is the powerful gospel in Acts chapter 6. The, re the realization not that the widows were starving, not that there were men to be appointed to serve in these, but that Christ was doing a work. That's what we must gather from the text. Our eyes can be taken so easily off of this and we can say, wow, what, what a provision that the Lord would uh, raise up men to serve the church. And that is great and that is wonderful. But let us not see that unless we first see the marvelous work of Christ to draw men into Himself. That's the amazing part of Acts chapter 6. Christ, because of His death on Calvary's cross and payment of believers' sins, granting through the power of of His Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, a repentant faith and spiritual blessings. And now these people love one another. And because of these spiritually uh, blessed people, there are now those that once hated one another and they're now loving. And they love because Christ first loved them. And because they love Christ they love His Word, and because they love His Word, they must love the church. And because they love the church, it means that they must love each and every one. They love the church. And because of this, the apostles meet with these men and they say, you must appoint men so that no one would do without. Notice that the apostles' appointment that we would select men deals with both the physical, temporal, and the spiritual. One, that they would appoint men so that the physical would be addressed. And two, that they would not themselves be taken away from the ministry of the Word so that the spiritual necessities would be given forth. When I got to this particular point in my studies, I thought of the hymn that we sing, Oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. And for today, it's no different. From beginning to end, Jesus Christ is saving those whom are lost and He is feeding the hungry. And the main course is love. Love is the invitation to the feast. Love is the host is putting on the feast. Love is the meal by which we are filled both temporally and in the spiritual man. It says in verse 3, Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. So there are the men who are being picked and there are the qualifications concentrated, if you will, full of spirit and full of wisdom who we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. Why? Because the men didn't simply make this idea up on their own, but they were be, being led by the Spirit, and thus the congregation could follow the leadership as far as they were following the Scripture. 
as far as, far as they were following the Christ of the Scripture and the, the Spirit testifying the truths that these things that are, that are de- declared on earth shall be also declared in heaven. If this is the means by which Christ would feed His people, so shall it be and so shall the Spirit testify that they can be in union and in agreement about this. And so they chose the seven and these they brought forth after praying and laid their hands on them. Seven men. Now this doesn't mean that in every instance we need to appoint seven deacons, seven servants. But rather this is a model. This is a unique, individually uh, unique, if you will, account of what has happened in the Scripture. And I think this has given one uh, first and foremost that there are seven because seven in the Bible is always the number of completion. Seven represents fulfillment. That in six days God created the earth and on the seventh He rested. And for that we get to the other point that the seven represents a point of rest. That these widows could rest and trust in the leadership as far as they were being led by Christ because the rest came by the message of Christ. Rest which is in Christ alone. They met to select seven now herein we get to the point in which later in 1 Timothy chapter 3 we have the qualifications. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of bishop or elder, he desire a good work. He then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine or striker, not a greeter or filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre holding the mystery of the faith in pure conscience. And let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Jesus Christ. Must be dignified. Must not be double-tongued or addicted, not greedy or dishonest. There we have the requirements. And we see the men that are chosen, which is why I picked the title that you may have first found kind of strange, The Chosen Chosen. It represents men that were chosen by the church under the Authority of Scripture by the prompting of the Spirit testifying to their qualifications. Here are these chosen men and they are chosen secondly to be deacons, but firstly they must be chosen in Christ. Therefore they are first chosen as members of the body of Christ that is the church and then secondly they are chosen and appointed unto their duties as deacons. Therefore we have the chosen chosen. Now it's worthwhile to 
not only see these requirements, yet to note these requirements in light of the events in Acts chapter 6. We saw the requirements. Let them first be proven. Let them use the office and be found blameless. And then also in 1 Timothy chapter 5, we see lay hands suddenly on no man. Now this is the part that you all didn't know that you were waiting for. This is no longer speaking about the church needing something and about a deacon being able to serve this need. But this is the responsibility of the congregation. The entire body. Those unified in Christ. First we must be unified in Christ. How is the deacon to be proved or tested? How can this be yet so clearly the people, the widows were hungry. How do we have time to prove and test these men? Well, the problem is we're not reading that in context. We're not considering these qualifications. The church did not wait weeks or months or years to test these men after a need arises. That would be foolish. And we're to be a people who are prepared for we know not the hour or the day that Christ will return. We know not where our next meal will come from, nor shall we worry. But we must always be vigilant and be prepared. In Acts chapter 6, the church didn't wait to test. Months, years, weeks, days. This was a pressing matter. People needed food. In that, we see the responsibility of the congregation to those whom will serve as deacons towards uh, those prospective deacons even we see this responsibility of the church and of the congregation we know that the church is called to be responsible and to be accountable to one another that is the basis after salvation that we join the church that when we come to the church we say we are willing to submit to the leadership and authority of scripture in this church we're willing to submit to christ in the leadership of the church we're, we're willing to select people as leaders of this church and we're willing to be accountable all to one another from the child to the pastor all accountable to one another we know that the church has this responsibility. We're to be all involved in one another's lives so that we may be reminding one another daily of Christ's work. So that we also are seeing that our brothers and sisters are cared for and that they're not falling into sin. You see, the problem is that if we disconnect from Scripture, we'll say, oh, now these men need to be tested now all of a sudden we need to be concerned if these men are deacon material when in fact from the moment that someone joins this church we better be concerned and we better hold one another accountable not so that we can simply be deacons but so that sin will not overtake our lives. This is the testing. And it didn't happen as men wanted to become deacons but the testing begins when you are seeing Christ and seeing the need to become a member of the church, and you're joining that church, the testing begins. Jesus begins to give things as a test. We're to see everything as a test. I'm going to look at a particular passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians. It says, We want you to know, brothers, chapter 8, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. 
For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in the wealth of generosity on their part. The test began when one comes to Christ. The test begins, the race begins, if you will, and we will be tested. And we're tested in affliction, the passage says. And the result of that test for the true believer is an abundance of joy, even in extreme poverty. It has overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Here is describing the deacon, the servant of the church, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. It didn't just happen overnight. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. So we make it back. We're seeing that the congregation is looking for one who in the deepest of valleys and the highest of mountains is seeking to serve and to give and to offer out of the abundance of their heart. We're to be involved with one another. We're to take care of one another. So how is it that one could test these men in such a short time? Simple. The responsibility of the congregation is to always hold one another accountable. To all biblical mandate. Not just to 1 Timothy chapter 3 or Titus. Not to hold someone's feet to the fire of the Ten Commandments. But to every biblical mandate. Why? Because we see that the service that to come is to stem from the love of Christ. To love Christ, he said, is to keep His commandments. Not just some. Not just ten. Not just two. But all of biblical mandate. Therefore, when the time comes, when a deacon is needed, there is no question. For the church has been on watch. If the church has not a person who is able to become a deacon, and, and it, it should never be because the church doesn't know. Rather, those things should be prayerfully considered and brought to, before the Lord that He would raise someone up. But never would be, should be the answer, oh, well now we've got to start testing. The church and its leadership and its congregants, everyone, are to be aware of who is in the church. We're to be accountable to one another. We are to be those who have been on watch and haven't fallen asleep. We know the one whom is serving already. And we recognize those things. In this sense, I find the laying suddenly of hands may in fact not re refer to one who hasn't been tested, but consider this, that uh, in light of what we see in Acts chapter 6, lay hands on no man suddenly, could quite in fact refer to a new believer. One who has just come to the Lord. Everyone's been a part of a church where we see someone who for a short period is very zealous, seems very moral if you will but they may be dictated by legalism they may be strung along by a desire for self-righteousness and it may not last rather I find it appropriate that the laying on of hands 
may, may in fact be taken that we have considered someone. For the, it could happen this way, that a pastor could be brought here uh, or a minister or an elder from somewhere else and we still must give appropriate time to see that he does meet these qualifications. But the real fact is that we appoint no one to a position who is a new believer. And there's other texts in Scripture to describe that. One whom we have not known. Surely if we were part of a church and we had known Paul's habitual lifestyle, we wouldn't have said, hold on, Paul, we're going to have to test you for about six months before you can serve here. The difference is that we know. We have a testimony that we've been looking to see if this person, and none of us would deny uh, Paul to be a, uh, an elder, much less a deacon, then rather we should let this test begin the day that someone steps into this building, the day that someone commits themselves to this church. Our life is the test. We're not being tested by men. Our life instead is the test. Our word and our works are the test. Our speech and our love is the test. Ultimately, the church is to be responsible to know her leaders, to see the service of others towards the church, and also to disciple others, to be an example of service toward the brethren. Quite literally and equally, there must be responsibility to the deacon as far as the deacon has responsibility to the congregation. And still another indictment remains, although we esteem highly the requirements thus far listed, we must notice that this is not for some super elite Christian. What do you mean? I'm telling you that these requirements are not simply for the deacon or for the elder. Someone who is more filled with the Spirit than someone else. But in fact, every Christian should be striving to meet these. Now, the women won't be able to be the husbands of one wife. But the fact that they're seeking as far as possible to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and His church, that is the testimony. That is what every Christian should be looking for. These are the characteristics that Scripture describes. There's one premier text that I would claim to you solidify this position that these are not just for deacons to attain. These are not just for elders, but consider the letter, the epistle to Philippians in chapter 1. Paul is writing, and in this particular uh, chapter of Scripture, he's writing about responsibilities of preaching, write about, writing about responsibilities that would be for leaders. And see if you notice it. Paul and Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God upon my every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making requests with joy for fellowship in the gospel from the first day into now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, even as it is, is meet for me to thank this of you all, because I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. Here are leaders of the church defending the gospel, confirming the gospel, preaching the gospel. And he continues, You all are partakers of my grace, for God is my record. How greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in the knowledge and in all judgment. 
Certainly, we all have things to judge. But in this context, Paul is talking to men in the church, leaders of the church. More and more knowledge. Be studious. Be growing in the grace of Christ. Growing in the knowledge of Christ. And then he finishes with verse 10 through 12. That ye may approve things that are excellent. That ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. But I would ye understand... Brethren, that the things which happen unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Here are men in judgment, approving things that are excellent in Christ. They must be leaders of the church. But then I'll direct your attention as he's speaking to those. He opens up to Paul and Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Jesus Christ. All the saints. Not just the leaders of the church, but all the saints. The same requirements. He says, with the bishops and deacons. Not only are these men at all times, but all of the saints be held to the same standard. All these saints looking to meet these requirements. All these saints looking for perfection in Jesus Christ and looking for righteousness of Christ. He says, so that my bonds... In Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all the other places. Some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. There again we see the point of the text, speaking to the men who are preaching in the church. Yet he does not say this is only for the men, but this is also for the saints. Every member. Yet, we see people want to say, well, this is for the deacon. This is for the elder. No requirement other than being saved by the blood of Jesus Christ gets you into heaven. This is for all the saints. You are before Christ to be looking to fulfill the requirements just as any deacon or elder. You too must strive. We all fight the same fight. We all are racing the same race. We're all serving the same Christ. Biblical charge for a deacon is to serve the church in the admonition and fear of the Lord. Likewise, is the charge for the church to support her deacons, to be vigilant, to be aware at all times, to be testing. The biblical charge of a deacon is a physical requirement because we see that in Acts that these men weren't just preaching or teaching. In fact, we see very little about that. It says they're ministering the Word, and that doesn't mean from a pulpit, but we see that there's a physical requirement upon a spiritual man. A physical requirement on a spiritual man. The purpose of a deacon is to serve and serve out of the love of Christ. To serve from the heart that is devoted to Christ. And the church's responsibility is to encourage and to see these things. To acknowledge these things. To pray for these people. 
And with that, I would submit to you that we're here today, yes, uh, because we have appointed one as a deacon and he's been called of the Lord to serve the church and he's been serving the church faithfully for some time. But that we also need to see that every Christian has the responsibility in the church to be aware of what God has said in his word. To be devoted so to Christ that when someone comes in here, they don't know who the deacon is. They don't know who the pastor is because every member is filled with the Spirit and filled with the love of Christ and is devoted to serving Christ and His church. That should be the goal of this church. That should be the goal of every church. And in that, to see the graces of Christ upon the cross that He would die for so many, for this multitude, for this few who sat before us this morning. For those who have yet to receive the gospel that Christ would go to the cross and shed his blood so that we may serve. And in fact, the irony is that Christ would go to the cross so that he would serve us. What does Christ serve us? He serves us forgiveness, mercy, sanctification, justification, righteousness. And it's handed to it all of this to us by one who is both man and who is God, King of kings and Lord of lords. This time I'll ask Brother Pat to come up here.